the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pyan. I'm Sarah Pyan, your host, and today we have Andrew D'Angelo and Christopher Peak of Pipeline on the show. Welcome, guys. I'm really happy to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having us on. That's fantastic. Absolutely. We're really looking forward to the conversation, Sarah. Thank you. And I got to say, welcome back, Andrew, because we had a really great conversation about Last Prisoner Project last time we spoke. That's right. Yes. And um, still on the mission to free our prisoners. So let's not let's not forget about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the reasons that we're here. We got to really look at like it's not just business. It's about changing people's lives and creating opportunities, which speaking of pipeline business growth engine really excited to talk to you both about this today now andrew i know the first time that you were on the podcast we talked about your first cannabis experience but i haven't asked christopher yet <laughs> what was your so first I, cannabis experience literally my first cannabis experience yeah okay so i'm going to admit something to you that if my uh, my lovely aunt and my mother were listening they'd freak them out but my, my my parents were 16 when i was born i was born december 1967 in uh, in Los Angeles, California, um, everybody was hippies, and they used to blow pot smoke in my face when I was a baby to mellow me out because I was kind of a spazzy kid. So when I was like a little kid in the crib, they were all sitting around like puffing on a J, and then they'd blow a little bit my way. And um, and uh, then by the time you know, I didn't smoke it as a kid, but that was like my first introduction to the, the you know the cannabis thing. And and by the way, my brain's fine. <laughs> um, and then uh, no development issues at all. Um, and then and then really, um, my dad grew. Um, my my brother was a grower up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, a lot of that BC bud, because um, that's where I'm from, is up in Washington State. So I was always around. It's never been a. It's never not been there, and it was never. Um, and it was never taboo in the world that I grew up in. So you know, I, I don't know. I don't. That's just, I don't have a memory of that. But it, that's as far as I know. The mythology from my aunt, my mother, is that's how it started. I mean, I, I think that that's, you know, it, it's got to be something to not be raised with the stigma because a lot of us have to unpack that. Like, I, my, I know that my parents use, used cannabis when I was younger, but I had no idea till I got older. And my mom actually forbade my father from using it because she said that he was no fun and useless when he got Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so he just wasn't allowed to use it because he was a bore afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> curious what he was smoking i know well that's a thing and actually um i was just talking to my mom about it the other night and she's like i don't you know talking to you i didn't realize there were all these different things she's like it was just we got what we got it was giggly i'd you know hang out with my friends and that was it i didn't understand i have no idea that there was there was nothing that there was more to it than that and i was like yeah we can unpack that but that's going to take a little bit, mom, you know, you're going to have to take out your notebook. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember back. So, you know, my family is originally from Los Angeles and I remember living in, you know, we were, my dad surfed back in the, you know, the late sixties and early seventies. And I remember him sitting at the table in this little place we had down in uh, Hermosa beach, about a block off the, uh, a block off the beach. But remember the old lids with the cellophane, the bricks with the red cellophane, I don't know if that I don't know if that takes you far enough back, but that stuff used to come up from Mexico, and my old man used to sit there at the table and kind of peel those things open and break them up and you know put them into um, smaller batches. But that's how far back I go in the space. I just 
It was always been there. And incidentally, I'd just say to what you were just saying about um, kids, I have four kids and I, you know, I, w- I didn't blow it in their face and I certainly didn't, it wasn't like in the room with them. Mm-hmm. But I never hid it from them, even when it was, you know, when it was illegal in the state of California, but I did talk to them about it. And I have to say that, you know, three of my kids are out of the house. Um, one of them smokes, two of them don't. And they're completely okay. Like even the one that smokes, it's not like he's a pothead. Yeah. You know, he's not, he's not in a coma every day. He's got a job, he's got a life, but they just, I'm, as a parent, I'm a big believer in that idea that, you know, really it's about communication and education. Mm-hmm. It's not about keeping things from them, hiding things from them. And uh, the successes of my kids are fantastic. And, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's always just been about being open about that. I think that that's... And a, honest. Yes. Honest, right? brother. Honest. Um, because yeah. a lot of times the temptation is to not be honest, yeah. um, to, to, to incentivize kids not to do something. Um, whereas the data is pretty clear right now in, in places that legalize, youth use goes down. It doesn't go up. And... No one really knows why that is. My theory is it's not cool to smoke weed anymore. Um, uh, it's it's right. not rebellious anymore. It's That's not, it, right? And so, and all the adults are doing it. So why would I want to do that? Um, yeah. Uh, but that's just a theory. We don't know um, why that is. But um, um, maybe it's because parents are being honest and open with their kids a little bit more like you were, Christopher. And um, it's um, something I've always encouraged parents to do um, because kids know when you're lying to them um, intuitively. They have a very there's no better liar than a kid. <laughs> um, and um, um, uh, I lied all the time when I was a kid um, because it's it's a survival mechanism. It's also a, a way you practice, you, you practice, you know, being in the world. Um, uh, not to say that my parents hated lying and we'd get in big trouble if we ever got caught. Huge trouble, like the biggest trouble you could possibly get in. Um, but... Um, but I think that, you know, I've learned that that honesty is always the best policy, um, especially when it comes to educating our kids. Kids have these things now yeah. and they can they can learn anything yeah. faster than we can possibly yeah. tell it to them. And whether they get the right information or the wrong information, who knows? It's still information. And and. Uh, it's at their fingertips. So um, uh, the- I think that's just to say that that's why the focus has to be on raising kids who th- it's not quite where I thought we were going in this conversation. <laughs> but just <laughs> no, to but say- it's a pipeline. And yeah, exactly. Are, it's part of yeah. the pipeline. Kids, that's the, ultimately yeah. that's well, what. And I think making sure that you raise kids that learn how to think critically. Yes. And have and, and can look at problems and look at conditions and look at information and look at perspectives with a mind that is thoughtful and open and, and able to um, take into consideration all of the relevant um, uh, you know feeds of information that are coming in and do something with them that's meaningful and not just kind of float along believing everything that they hear, believing everything that they read and responding with the belief without having backed it up with some you know, real evidence of the perspective. So I, critical thinking to me is, uh, that's what it's for my kids. For, that's what it's all about. I'm always saying to them, well, how do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. I think right. from well, like- it's, your description of critical thinking was a perfect description of pipeline. 
There that's exactly what we do is nice we, transition too. That's exactly I like that. I like do. that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we do with our clients, right? Is, exactly. Is, exactly. Is, is get them to think critically um, and not assume um, because um, when you're an entrepreneur and you have a vision, okay, like a lot of our clients are startups, not all, but a lot of them, um, it's easy to get those blinders on and not really see um, and not think critically about your vision because you're in love with it, right? You're in love with your vision, and 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 when you can, when you can get help from people like Pipeline, um, what that does is it, it it takes your vision and it gives it a steroid shot, um, and it turns it into the Incredible Hulk, if you will, um, because. Um, now we are thinking critically and now we are not assuming and now we are collecting data uh, and now we are comparing ourselves to our competitors. Um, and now we are having creative discussions about what is the identity of this organization or this company or this brand or this product or this dispensary. Um, what is the meaning of that? And the meaning doesn't have to be peace and love save the earth. The meaning can be we want to do well for our shareholders. That's fine. Um, we know how to build that too. Um, I think Christopher Peake did a pretty good job with that at the Apple stores. Um, and so, you know, it can be whatever the vision is, right? It, but you got to think critically. You have to sort of break it apart and put it back together again so that you don't allow those blinders to cause you to not see something um, that could have a huge impact on, on what you're trying to do. Well, and, and going on that, you know, because we see a lot of people entering the cannabis industry. Some people have wonderful institutional knowledge of the industry. Some people come in with great knowledge from their professional corporate background. And we often see these big chunks that are missing on the road to success for them. And it seems like the work that the two of you are doing dovetails so well because you both are very well-rounded with your experience, both from the cannabis standpoint, but also how things work in a, in a business sense to be successful. And, and, you know, Christopher, your background, are you tell us a little bit about that too, because, and then of course we're going to talk about Andrews because the things that you've done in cannabis and the industry have been, I mean, I'll just say it, it's, it, there's a lot of historic stuff that happened that paved the way for a lot of people to have success in what we do. Um, well, I'd respond a little bit to what you said there for a second too, just to start with is absolutely it is about bringing to bear the years and years of experience across a different, a number of different platforms and businesses. It is absolutely taking that, um, that, you know, kind of being able to bring in um, an understanding of somebody's business, but then help them develop the filters that allow it to get to the place it needs to get to to be successful, whether that's putting together, um, you know, one or three or five year um, business projections or goals or looking at the brand DNA or identifying go to market strategies or talking about the products, whatever that stuff is, there is a kind of filter that you develop over time working inside of. Um, both large and small companies. And for myself, I was, uh, um, I started out, I really started out in the, in kind of developing concepts um, at Universal back in uh, the early 2000s. 
And from there, I went into, um, I worked for them for a while and then went into consulting work, um, worked with brands like Williams-Sonoma, doing Pottery Bards, PBs, and running through all of that stuff, but also working with, you know, restaurateurs, uh, uh, quick food places like Pete's Coffee, Starbucks. Um, and then um, I ended up at Apple eventually, and I ran design, research and development, uh, procurement manufacturing facilities. Um, and developed all those groups for um, for the retail space under Angela Aarons and rolled out uh, a lot of retail spaces. And then I'm on a number of patents at Apple for developing the um, all of the different systems that go into the retail spaces and um, and like tech tech and materials and da da da. And then after leaving Apple, I continued <clears throat> working with um, brands, both large and small. And uh, coming in, sometimes I come in as an incremental leadership. Um, I'll come in as fractional and sit in as their kind of their um, interim CEO or their interim COO to help them build strategy and develop their company. Um, and then in some cases, I just um, I come in and do projects for folks in-house in at different companies and help them develop their go-to-market, their omni-channel approach, whether it's brick and mortar or um, say it's online e-commerce or in-app. I've also done product development work, um, including I have my own product development company. And um, so all of that kind of stuff I, I bring to bear. And then the cannabis piece really was Andrew and his brother. Um, I had done, before I went to work for Apple, when legalization was flipping over, a buddy of mine who's a chef in the Bay Area, he's moved down to Arizona, but he was in the Bay Area for a long time. We got this idea that we wanted to create a little sports bar that was cannabis infused and see if we could sell them in the, you know, inside the um, dispensaries right at the very beginning. And so um, I actually sold at Harborside for a very short period of time because then I had to take the Apple gig and I had to shut that all down because Apple wasn't going to be too cool about it. Yeah. But um, so that was my intro to cannabis space. And then I've had some cannabis clients as I've gone along and helped them develop their concepts or help them come up with design ideas, um, how they how they do their retail spaces, things like that. Yeah, because it's, it's one of those things where, you know, some people will say, oh, it sells itself. Well, it's not true. Nothing. Yeah. There's nothing actually that sells itself. Exactly. That phrase. You just say the perfect thing. Like people say that, and I'm like, you're crazy. Like you can't set something on the ground outside and walk away, and then everybody's going to come by and buy it. Nothing sells itself. You have things that are easier to sell, but um, without a doubt, um, you have to have very, very clear strategies on the way you go to market. Whether you're talking about product or services, and it's something that's it's got a life cycle. You have to continually continue to touch it and manage it and 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 look at it and make sure it's working right and be flexible and 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 make changes when you think the changes are appropriate to um, to do better with your business. Right. So it's it's it, it requires a lot of handholding actually from ownership and from and from anybody that works there. Yeah, and I think that there is for people who are entering the industry or maybe at a higher level who aren't paying as much attention to what's going on at the consumer level, they lose touch with what's going on with their consumers. Like Andrew, you know, walking into Harborside, you'd see people from all walks of life in the store. And it's it's very eye-opening. It's it's very different than people may perceive it. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, the there's still a lot of stigma. So there's a lot of perception that it's just a bunch of stoners going into the dispensaries. And if it's a medical framework, they're not really sick. Um, if it's an adult use framework, um, you know, it's, it, they just want to get high. Um, and, and that's just not the case. I'm in the camp that all cannabis use is medical. Even if the intention of the end user is not medical, 
right. in the front of their mind. Right. Um, they might be going to get a product to relax or make them feel good, get high, if you will. Mm -hmm. That's their intention walking into the store. But then when they consume the product, this thing called the endocannabinoid system in their body gets engaged by the product mm -hmm. um, and their inflammation goes down. <laughs> their mood lightens, their stress lightens, their sleep may improve, their appetite sometimes is either increased or suppressed depending on the cannabis and depending on what they're trying to do if they're sophisticated. Um, and all of a sudden, they're not just feeling euphoric, they're feeling well. Um, and so that's the camp I'm in. And, 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 you're, and because there's so much physical and emotional, mental suffering right now in our country and in our world, it's one, you know, you read the news, it's just doom, 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 doom. You know, we just came out of this pandemic that was very hard on everybody, man. I don't Absolutely. Whatever walk of life you were in. Um, and so all those folks are starting to explore cannabis now and, and, and all kinds of walks of life are coming in. Um, that's my mission is to make this plant more accessible to everybody in every community in the country and on the earth because my father was horrified that his sons decided to do this with their lives um, and was really really gave us a hard time until we were able to legalize cannabis uh, for medical purposes. My dad ended up taking a second mortgage on his house to help us open Harborside and then um, after we paid the loan back and he was in his 70s, he himself started to take cannabis for his physical ailments, arthritis and joint pain. And he had a hip replacement surgery and so forth and so on. Right. And here was a man that made his entire living from the system. My dad worked for the federal government, then he worked for Amtrak, and he, he was an establishment person um, and gave us a really hard time. I'm talking decades here um, and filled us with all kinds of self-doubt and imposter syndromes and all sorts of things. Um, it wasn't his fault, right? right? He was trying to protect us as a dad. He knew that prison was not a good outcome for his sons, and, and he did not want that. Um, and he felt the only way that he could be a responsible dad was to discourage us from doing this until things are legal, right? And then he flipped. And we're seeing that all over in all communities that have access now to me legal medical or legal adult use or both. And, you know, that's, that's really what this is all about. Um, and, yeah. and, 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 and Pipeline is about presenting this thing with all this stigma in a way that's comfortable, safe, and hopefully a little fun too. Yeah, and I think um, it, just as specifically to the idea of what Andrew was just going through, this idea about customer, it's also something that there's a pro that there is a way of going after understanding what the voice of your customer is. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about the product that you have or the dispensary or however you're presenting yourself into the market, 
one of the things that you want to dig into is really understanding the you know conceptually what the um, customer's needs are, what the customer's wants are, um, expectations, uh, preferences, right? And so, you know, the process of collecting and analyzing customer feedback or potential customer feedback, it's a bit of a science. Mm -hmm. And so when you have somebody that, when someone comes to Pipeline to work with Andrew and I, part of what we're saying to them, to saying to you is like each piece of this puzzle that, you're, that you've got in front of you that you're trying to put together that is your business, all of it has a way of being critical critically minded about it and breaking it down and analyzing it. And, um, and so that you can kind of boost in, or is, uh, get to the incredible Hulk steroid thing, you can boost, right. The um, overall business uh, performance. And that's, you know, that's what we're, what's part of what we're doing here is saying, Hey, we've been doing this in, in a number of different spaces for a long time. And there's a methodology and there's also art. And those two things both live constantly. And so if you can understand either what your existing customer's voice is and the customer experience, by the way, also super important. And you can also, or you can understand what your potential customer's um, voice is and go out and do that voice of customer research and come back. It helps you tune when you're developing your strategies. If I know as an example that most of my customers are people that are coming to me later in life, let's just use Andrew's dad as an example, who's coming to us later in life and he has it's, his body doesn't feel great. He has layers of anxiety about his um, about his age. These are all things that can be taken into consideration, and you can focus if you want, if that's your goal of your company. You can focus to meet the needs of that customer by understanding their voice. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I as somebody who worked for um, a major dispensary in the Bay Area for over a decade, I can tell you, like during the pandemic there were a lot of people that were turning to cannabis for relief. And I did a class, I was doing, I was working from home, but I was doing classes online. And I had one about sleep, anxiety, and depression. I had over 200 people from around the world on the classes. And, you know, you, then you do, you engage them in products, you help them understand how they work. And then they think about it in a way that they didn't before. But also like, looking at how to engage people and and as somebody i'm i'm the chair of the medicinal use subcommittee for the state and we get people that are coming on in public comment going you know bud tenders aren't healthcare providers they can't give advice and it's like you're right they're not healthcare providers but we can create a safe container for experimentation so that people have successful outcomes understand what works for them but also giving the messaging that if it's not right for them because some of us have don't do well with phytocannabinoids. That's okay. It's all right. Because you turn one person against it with a bad experience, they become an evangelist that's against cannabis, and then you've got that stigma. But that's going back to the critical thought thing. In life in general, just because something's not right for you doesn't mean that somebody else shouldn't have access to it. Yeah, I, I, it's totally true. I think part of it, too, is is the way, I mean, you, you kind of hit on it, this notion of how you do the delivery of it, mm -hmm. how the conversation happens, um, understanding how to set up your team so that they can successfully navigate conversations coming in those kinds of conversations, which is also, you know, is part of the process. It, it's a huge part. And when we got into legalization, you know, so many people who weren't engaged were like, oh, everyone's going in and getting high. And the thing that I noticed was that more people who didn't want to deal with getting recommendations, they were worried about being tracked, they were actually feeling free to come in and say, hey, I'm having some problems with sleep, 
or I'm having issues with stress. And I was kind of curious to see if this would work because, you know, I've been reading research about benzodiazepines and dementia, and I really don't want to go down that route. You know, and, and so we can have those conversations where we empower people to make decisions for themselves without making false promises. And I think that, you know, one of the biggest things when we're looking at consumer engagement is having a place that has not only the products that people are looking for, but they feel supported with their their purchases. And especially when we're looking at like the market of, yeah, a lot of people buy cannabis, but women in particular in, you know, in purchasing in general are the household deciders of what goes in. I mean, I know for me, like if, if I head to the dispensary, my husband's like, you know what I like, get whatever, get whatever's good, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, there's, a, there's actually an interesting real world example of that in, in other spaces, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to the notion of, you know, a big percentage of what you're doing is education. And this is an unique thing. You go into, I'll just use as an example, Sephora. Yeah. Sephora is a huge makeup um, uh, retailer, right? If you, if I, well, if anyone goes into there for the first time and doesn't know anything about makeup, you can get from not knowing anything about makeup to walking out of the store with something that matches your skin, something that fits with your eyes, something that fits within the ideas that you had of what you wanted to do with the makeup, right? And that's because Sephora from understands from the very moment that the customer engagement happens that they're there to help educate. So let's go over here and talk about this. Let's go over here and talk about this and really help. It's it's the idea of helping the customer formulate a perspective without with a guidance and education, but without forcing them. It's not a hard sell, right? right. And so it's not, it's not a unique thing, but it is something to acknowledge and it is something to make part of your strategies, particularly when it's relevant. And it is something that you can um, that you can kind of nurture and and uh, and build. Right. And the process of doing that with your teams. Yeah, And at the end of the day, for entrepreneurs, especially the people that are clients and that we help, we got to deliver growth and we have to deliver money. Um, um, you know, people need to make money. And that's what Pipeline is really all about. All this talk about the customer and the engagement and the journey. And it really is. Those are the building blocks of growth. Right. Those are how you get to point A all the way to point Z where you're, you know, counting stacks of money um, because uh, um, it's, it's when we talk about, it's so complicated and nuanced, right? When we, right. When we start talking about um, all that. But, but at the end of the day, that's why we call Pipeline an engine for growth um, is, is, is if we do these things well, businesses will grow and thrive and almost more importantly what happens is you start to create community within your business especially in this cannabis space because there's limited access and 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 everything has to happen in a particular way in the supply chain and and either the delivery or the dispensary is the only and option for people and you know there's still a lot of people that are, don't want to go into a dispensary yeah. they they don't feel comfortable even nice dispensaries they 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 just don't feel comfortable like some people don't feel comfortable going into a check cashing store or a pawn shop right um it has sort of this thing going on and if if people are not comfortable going in well they're not going to buy anything right um and so 
it goes back to that stigma question a little bit that we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's emotional. People make decisions based on emotion. And so the, the customer journey is emotional. The entrepreneurial journey is also emotional. Yes. And, and so what we want to do is we want to create a safe space for customers to get to walking in the door in one state of mind and walking out the door with, wow, um, if we're advising on a product, not a retailer, when they take that product home and they open it up and they experience it, that's got to be a moment of wow. Um, and if we can create wow, and it's one reason I'm so grateful Chris and, and Aaron and his team agreed to do Pipeline with me because um, these guys and gals at, at, at ACV, they know how to do wow really well. Um, before the Apple store, it was Best Buy or Radio Shack. Um, and, you know, totally different experiences. Underwhelming experience. Yeah, <laughs> overwhelming in the co Best Buy. It's just like, yeah, it's oh, too God. much. I, yeah, I, yeah. Like like the, you know, the, and knowing the help you, and you're like looking around and, you know, the Apple store, as soon as you walked in the door, hi, how are you? The t shirt, the. The, you know, everything. Um, and, and it was like, do you need help right now? I'm right here with you. Let's go, let's go to this monitor or let's go to this, those beautiful counters you had with the, with the things on it. And you could interact with the product, right? You couldn't do a radio shack. You couldn't do mainly, basically you couldn't do it best Buy. I've had all the TVs with the football games on, but you know, um, um, and but, so but some of what you're talking about, though, just to jump in a little bit, too, that I, I don't want because you, you, you spoke about it for a second, Andrew, and then you shot past. But I want to grab it for a second. Yeah, grab it. Is this thing about brand engagement. Right. Like, there, of course, there's brick and mortar. There's e-commerce. There's in-app purchasing. There's all of that work. But at the beginning of it, which we do, we do a lot of this work um, through Pipeline here and at ACV, um, is this idea of brand engagement and understanding what your brand is and who you are. Um, being able to sit down and really dive into and dissect your brand DNA so that when you're making decisions about the way that you're communicating out to the customer, it's based on some kind of um, um, understanding and perspective of, of who you are as a brand. Right. Uh, oftentimes what happens and, and you see it, and I think part of the problem, part of one of the constraints we'll say in the cannabis space is oftentimes you don't know if you're going to get a license and then you get a license and then you got a short period of time to get your buns in shape and get out there. The struggle is, is that what you see is people are just oftentimes, and I've seen this in a lot of retail spaces or products as well, where they're just kind of throwing everything they could think of at it, right? And hoping something sticks. It becomes like a, a Jackson Pollock painting. And what, what, we, what you really want to do is just take a second and take a stand with who you are and say, listen, we're about, you know, um, being, uh, it, it's, you kind of build it up like archetypes in a way. Um, we're really interested in being the mystic in the space that's helping guide people to understand. Like you can get that kind of nutty about it, but having the perspective and having the anchored perspective within the understanding of who you are as a brand and what your voice is means that every decision that you make after that is a guided decision. And you're much more likely to be successful if you have con you know, consolidated your perspective and you're guiding your decisions based on that perspective than if you're just throwing stuff at a wall and hoping something sticks. And so that's a big piece of it too, right? 
I want to know that my voice of my brand, I, a brand that I, I absolutely love. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say brands on here. Can I say something? Sure. Yeah. My, okay. I love Lowell's. I'm such a huge fan of Lowell's. I, I, I'm down in uh, You Santa mean the, um, the cannabis brand, the Lowell's. Yeah. Yeah. I just think they do a really beautiful job with their packaging, with their product. I like their little dog walkers. I buy those all the time. Mm-hmm. I, um, I love their branding. I know who that is. I get it. When I see that brand, I'm engaged. Um, I know my, you know, when my, some of my family comes into town, they're always wanting to get some of their products as well. I think that's a nice example of somebody understanding the root of who they are and their DNA, and then traveling their products out through that voice. And um, everyone should be doing that. You should be speaking with your voice in as strong a manner as you can, so that customers come to you and go, yeah, I trust you. I get you. I'm in. Yeah. And so that's part of what we're talking about, too. And they see themselves in the product. Exactly. They relate. You relate. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, I probably relate because, you know, I've got a family has a little farm up in Washington state. We got heads of cattle on the farm. My mother's been rolling around for cows forever. When I look at Lowell's, their logo is the cow's head. I'm like, oh yeah, of course, that's something I can relate to cows. But it does mean, it is meaningful. It is. And it's interesting because you did the Apple stores and and I'm sure you both have heard this when people go into fancy dispensaries, like the first thing, no matter what, and they don't look like an Apple store, but they're like, it's like going into an Apple store. I have to say something to you. (laughs) That thing, it's so weird. Like my time there was, you know, Apple stores are built in vintages and I was, I went, I was the, you know, led the team that took us out of the stainless steel stores into the next vintage of stores. And then I did all the flags and the global flagships as well. Um, and the, in, you know, internationally all over the place, right? You, when you work inside on that stuff, you see people stealing all the time. You see brands stealing, you see fonts get stolen, you get logos, lighting gets stolen, fixtures get stolen. Everybody's always cannibalizing Apple's perspective. Um, and so it, I get to say, it cracks me up, walk into places they're like, hey, this is like an Apple store. And I'm like, well, actually, everything has become a little bit like an Apple store. You kind of can't get away from it. You know, like everybody's trying to be clean and the lines, are, you know, it's like all of that stuff that we did there. But um, it's, it's flattering, I think, for the for the company, I would hope. I, I would um, hope Except so. for the Microsoft store. The Microsoft store pissed a lot of people off. But um, that's was, understandable. It was such, there's a lot of dirty laundry behind that, too. But um <laughs> But yeah, I know. But there's there's things to learn from an Apple store if you're going to open up a retail space. The stuff that Aaron was just talking about. But it has a lot to it has a lot to do with um, creating a connection with the customer. It's that customer experience and customer journey and the customer voice. It's all there. It, Apple understands who who they're selling to. They understand their voice and their product. They never veer. They never veer off of that. It stays, it stays the constant, constant strategy of how they engage with the marketplace. And it's the biggest company. I mean, it's, you know, what is it bigger than most governments on the planet? Yeah. And people count on that. They, that's, that's count on the consistency is what people depend on. And and it's interesting because, you know, I'm still seeing in other states where they're talking about the green rush, which always makes me chuckle because I, I, you know, I think like seven years ago, I said to somebody, green rush is over. Nobody's, nobody's getting 3,500 a pound anymore. Okay, so unless you had like significant risk in working in the industry, you're you you've you've not seen the money that was in the past. But it's the growth of the industry. It's the growing up. It's the applying the critical thought. Things that the two of you 
are pushing forward with your clients that creates these differentiators so that you do win in the normalization of the industry. And I'm, I'm also kind of curious to see what your thoughts are from like when things start to change on a federal level, what that's going to look like for business growth as well and, and the trajectory of that. Well, I mean, first of all, the business environment right now is hard. As you just mentioned, the green rush is over. Most companies are losing money or, or, or breaking even. Not a whole lot of people are cashing in. Um, even cookies and burner, they, they bring in a lot of money, they spend even more. Um, so it's just a tough moment on that level right now because we're all basically working for the tax man. Um, uh, when you apply 280E to these businesses, your listeners may probably already know about 280E, but it's a federal tax code that does not allow anybody who touches a Schedule One substance like cannabis to deduct normal business expenses. So it makes the, the tax rate, especially for dispensaries, effectively 70-80%. And it, it, it's darn near impossible to make a lot of profit, on a net profit, um, under tax code 280E. And um, there was just a study released in the last 18 months, just on the, on the federal level, I think it was $6 billion that has been collected in taxes. Um, so um, so it's, it, it's a tough moment on, on that level. When the feds decide to take 280E away because they either reschedule or deschedule, um, then exuberance will return in a pretty big way. It will probably be irrational exuberance um, uh, just because there's so much pent up energy from federal prohibition being in place for almost a century now um, that it's it's going to be hard to manage that exuberance rationally <laughs> um, uh, but um, but it means that people are going to right now the capital is very hard to raise in the cannabis industry because investors have lost so much money particularly with the public companies um, and um, that will change with federal legalization. That exuberance will bring a lot more money into a capital. And with more capital, you can build more things, right? And um, build, in theory, <laughs> if you use pipeline, um, better things um, and greater things. Um, so, it, 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 of course, the federal framework will determine a lot of this, but we we have to assume that there'll be more access to cannabis dispensaries. There'll be more access to cannabis products. There'll be more access to cannabis licenses um, with federal legalization, dramatically so, than there are today. And then it may feel like a green rush again at that moment. It won't be $3,500 a pound for our growers um, but it may be, um, you know, instead of struggling to have three or four shops, you can, you know, for the same amount of effort, have nine or ten shops. Uh, because all of a sudden somebody thought your three shops are terrific and they're ready to give you some money to expand um, because they believe that they'll eventually get money. I mean, what do investors want to know? How much money do I need to give you? Um, uh, what will I earn on it? And when will I get all my money back? 
Um, those are the three questions and, 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 and our consulting group pipeline, I mean, we answer those up front. I mean, uh, uh, as part of the pro forma process, as part of the business planning process. Um, and um, people know what to expect because we figure it out on paper first. Um, because as I say, paper is cheaper than concrete. Um, and uh, we don't want uh, to <laughs> have to start tearing down walls because we didn't plan uh, properly. So, um, so I think the federal reform is still a number of years off, Sarah. I'm, 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 I'm almost ashamed to say that as an American, unfortunately, as an activist, um, I have to be real. And it's, we're going into an election year. Um, that's going to be a pretty partisan election, probably going to be a pretty close election. And, you know, the people who run the federal government, elected officials and otherwise, they're just not going to move on something this controversial uh, in an election year. Um, so a lot of federal reform will depend on who wins that election um, and not just the presidency, but the Congress. Yeah. Um, uh, even if the DEA approves the HH. S recommendation to move down to schedule three. Um, there's still, it's still illegal product at schedule three. You can't, you know, ketamine is schedule three. You can't, you have to go into a ketamine clinic, a clinic to get ketamine. You can't just get it from somebody. Um, um, that's not legal. Um, so we'll still have that. And, and, and then schedule three presents a whole lot of other things. Um, that the federal government has to do in addition to, you know, whether it be a, a framework of some kind, whether it be some rules of the road for the pharmaceutical industry, um, because they're the ones that basically have total control over Schedule 3, um, and, um, and the industry making a lot of adjustments therein. Um, you know, of course, our goal is to complete descheduling. Um, I think that the uh, opportunity to go into three, I hope, will ignite everybody's activism and advocacy so that we can take a crowbar and kind of wedge that open to full deschedulization, full um, non-control or uncontrolling. Um, it's called the Controlled Substances Act. So technically... But that's but that's like the interesting thing, right, Andrew? Because uh, like, like, look for like if you can look further around the corner, and yeah. kind of you know try to gaze around the corner. This train's going down a track; it's not going to get stopped. Eventually, this stuff will. It it, it we can it see it will be scheduled. It will be scheduled. Yeah. So that moment when it deschedules, think about all of the things that suddenly drop into place: banking industry, mm -hmm. large investments. You have different industries coming in that are all have different regulation profiles. And the reason why they have those different regulation profiles is because they can afford to go out and have advocacy at the federal level. They have lobbyists. So cannabis, you're likely to see a change in the way that cannabis is taxed once you have big, you know, big corporations and banks come in and start getting involved because they don't want to be taxed. They're not going to they're not going to want to be taxed the way the cannabis industry is taxed currently. And so they'll, <laughs> no. They're not. And so they'll push a lot of energy at the federal level and at the state level with lobbyists and funds to try to to try to slow down that uh, that tax constraint and make it so that there's more opportunity for a, a, an above line profit right so let's say all of that thing happens you're going to be successful with your business like if you're right now in the cannabis space or thinking about getting into the cannabis space you have to set up your business so it's as efficient and as effective as possible 
that it feels like it's it's as legitimate as it could possibly be, which is part of what we're talking about here, right? Legitimacy, having a business that is above the board, that there's not gray markets going on, there's not black market going on, that you're straight, you're keeping your books, you're managing your business. When that moment comes, one of the things that will happen is a lot of those a lot of those corporations and banks and venture capitalists are going to start buying up, which was a little bit of what Andrew was getting at, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to want to they they want to have. I got privy to a Bank of America doc. I don't know if I should say this out loud, but I got privy to a back Bank of America document a few years ago that was their strategy document for when cannabis becomes legal. It's an unbelievable document. It's a tremendous amount of investment in the space. It's a lot of purchasing in the space. They're going to come in and they're going to buy up. So they're going to buy up. They're going to they're going to try to you know to kind of push them their weight around a little bit with the feds and the states so they can change the taxation and they're going to make the industry level out so that and this is not unusual when you have a cottage industry that goes into something that is legitimized over time right mm -hmm. so the question is how do you survive in that moment how do you prepare your business for what eventually will come how do you survive in the moment you're in right now? Heavily taxed, heavily regulated, can't get a good bank, you know, you can't get a bank to hold your money. All those things are going, that is a strategy and, and no one knows that stuff really better than Andrew, right? But then how do you make sure that your business is viable when it goes through the evolution of where the business is headed, which we've all been watching for some time and it is definitely creeping in that direction. That piece you have to do too, because what you do not want to find yourself at is being the, you know, being the mom and, well, just to be blunt, I was working for Pete's Coffee when Pete's Coffee was trying to fight with Starbucks and they just didn't get it. They just didn't have the right strategy at all. And I remember sitting in a meeting and listening to them talking about what well, we want to be on every corner that Starbucks is on. And I'm going, what are you crazy? Like Starbucks is a monster and Starbucks is what it is because of its process. They do not have great beans, right? They have great name recognition, really good customer service, the cockpit where they do their coffee that's so fast and effective. They figured out the machine. You got to figure out the machine too. Mm -hmm. You want to survive, so it's it's tricky. Like this is a really tricky time. You have to be a, a, um, very um, set on understanding and managing your business at this moment in time, and you have to be tracking for what's coming in the future. And it's it's complicated, but it, you can look to history of business and other sectors and see other times that this has happened at different levels and see how people succeeded and understand how to set yourself up for that success. So. Yeah, I, I like to lovingly refer to that as the cage match for relevancy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> it's amazing too, boy. People go into that space. You see brands go into that space and, you know, they're really like, you know, you can like um, think about like Abercrombie and Fitch, you know, like there was a time when Abercrombie and Fitch was just a monster in the retail space. Mm -hmm. um, not anymore. And it, and I, I think the thing that continues to impact businesses negatively is their lack of innovation and their lack of forward thinking. They have a tendency to get into a place and go, okay, now we're gonna squeeze this lemon for as long as we can and make as much money as we can out of it. And it's not always an effective path. You, you, oftentimes that lemon only squeezes for a couple of years and pretty soon you're standing there with just the rind and an empty glass, wondering what am I gonna do now? Yeah. So, you know, it is, it is a cage match, I agree. Uh, so when you're working with clients and you're looking at the landscape and looking at what their goals are, what, what do you do to help them set themselves up for success? Well, I think just knowing what your goals are, yeah. like be specific. I mean, honestly, lots of folks are like, well, we want to make money. Uh, okay. Or we want to, yeah, like there's lots of like really getting down to understanding what your plan is. And then I think Andrew mentioned this earlier, which is this idea of kind of dissecting it down to its base 
um, components. Put together a six-month plan, a one-year plan, a two-year plan, a three and a five. Know where you're going to be in which one of those things and start building in that direction, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a lot of that. It's a lot of really forcing, the, forcing an organization, not really forcing, guiding an organization is a better term, guiding an organization to understand who it is, to understand what it wants to do and where it wants to go, and then to chart that journey with very specific um, uh, uh, kind of KPIs that you can see whether or not you're being successful or if you need to pivot. So um, to me, it's always about let's let's really sit down and it's it's that it's that go slow to go fast thing. Know what you're doing before you do. If you can, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you've got to do things because you just got to do them. And if that's the case, then you kind of have to build the plane, fly the plane, mm -hmm. which you can do. It's a you know, there's a way to do that. I've done that plenty of times. Um, but what you don't want to be is a uh, what's that? There used to be a term for planes when you're crashing a plane so you didn't freak anybody out. We're making a we're making a um, an uncontrolled descent into rough terrain or something like that. Like that sounds hopeful. You don't want to do <laughs> you don't want to do that, right? It's three basic questions: Who are you? What are you all about? Why does it matter? Um, the best organizations. You know the answer to those three questions. When you think of Patagonia, you know. You just yeah, it's a great know. example. It's a um, great company. You just absolutely know. Fantastic and, company. Um, and so that's ultimately, you know, what Pipeline is is doing is answering those three questions. Um, or helping you answer those three questions. Or yeah. helping your business answer those questions. Yes, we, right. don't have we can't answer, answer anything we, for you. Exactly. We can We're here to guide you through a process that of self-discovery and of that critical thinking going back to the very first thing we said um getting those blinders off your vision right and um expanding it um so that you can exceed your own expectations it is possible to do that but as entrepreneurs every entrepreneur hits a what i call an intermediate plateau with their vision at some point even harborside did right so that's when we need help Right. That's yeah, it's the cauldron. Some, sometimes you hear it called the cauldron, right? Yeah. Like you get to that spot and you're in that cauldron. That means you've got all of the ingredients in there and they're all bubbling and hot, but you have yet to actually create the soup. Right. And so that cauldron that, you, that Andrew's talking about, that's that's where, you know, it's a business in transition. We're at the starting line. That cauldron is where you come in and you provide, uh, you know, all of the knowledge and wisdom and perspective you can but also that there's assets that come out of it, right? This isn't ethereal. There's actually things that you can hold in your, you know, there's strategies, there's marketing, there's, you know, all of these things that you do, they're assets that come out of it, but they have to, their origin has to be from that cauldron. Now, when you, when you look at some of the things that are going on now, like, so we see a lot of people coming from other industries in, especially uh, we've, we've got a lot of C-level folks that are coming from big pharma and, I see as somebody who was in corporate America, although I was a non I took a jaunt into nonprofits in between. The one thing that I noticed, like even in the tech industry, was like companies buying other companies being like, I love your special sauce. Let's do this. There will be no changes. And then two years into it, it's like everything that was special about it was stripped out. And they're like, what happened? Oh, I guess we have to have layoffs now. What do you see with that in our industry? Because I'm seeing, I'm seeing the patterns. It's like third verse, same as the first. And I'm not, 
as much as I appreciate people coming in and bringing their business acumen and taking cannabis to another level, they're also bringing in their bad habits and the tired tropes that have made business just untenable in a lot of areas. What are you, what do you, what are the conversations you're having around that? Um, I think, I think I'll go first, Andrew, if you want. I, I, I think the, listen, there is no doubt that there's two sides to the coin, right? Mm -hmm. I think what makes it, I think why Andrew and I are a little bit different about it is both of us grew up in the stuff. We grew, we come from the culture of it. Yeah. Um, I remember when they opened up, dude, what was the name of the, you remember down in downtown Oakland on 16th street, that, that little cafe that opened up the cannabis cafe back was one of the early ones that was legal. Bulldog. Blue, Bulldog. No, blue sky. And, Bulldog. No, blue, yeah. sky blue, yeah, blue sky. Blue sky. Blue sky. Yeah. Blue so sky. you know, I I flew my mother mom down from Seattle, and this is when I was working at Apple. I think. Um, flew my mom down from Seattle. Took her to the cafe. She sat in the cafe and got a cup of coffee. I went in and I had a you know a medical, and got some you know got some product and came out and went outside with my mom and handed it to her. My mom cried. And she said, I have been waiting since 1965 for this moment. I cannot believe it to come. I didn't think it was ever. I mean, she sat in my car and wept, right? And um, I think it, it, while it is true, some people come from different, you know, everybody comes from different backgrounds. You go through, and I've certainly worked a tremendous amount, both in the corporate space, but also in startup space and smaller companies. There's a lot of good you can bring. There's a lot of bad you can bring, right? And so, as a as a person that works in business, I can only stand on the I can only stand on the laurels of the successes that I've had, as far as my ability to translate my business acumen into other people's businesses. Full stop. But what I also bring to it is, my, my brother went to prison for um, he started he, they, at 14. He got popped for for cannabis, mm -hmm. and that turned into eventually um, he OD'd 20 years ago from a heroin overdose. That was because he didn't want to go back to prison again because he'd already been there four times. And it all started with cannabis. My dad got popped back in the 70s. I was in the house when they came through the windows and the doors and took my dad away for selling cannabis. My brother got popped for growing cannabis for a plant that does a lot of people good, does me good. That I'm, and so I, you know, I think there's a sharpening of the um, intent when you come from having been in the wars of it yeah, to see it, to see it up front, there's a sharpening of um, not just intent, but of, 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 of care. When I work with folks, particularly in the camp, well, anybody I work with, I try to give them the best shot I've got and be as honest as I can. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the cannabis space, there's this other added layer of it, which is I also give a shit. I want this thing. To, I want this to continue to be legal. And I know that it will continue to be legal if the businesses are run in an effective and an efficient and in a thoughtful way, because then there's no reason for it not to be. And so that I think that's a piece of it, at least for me, Andrew, you speak for yourself, my friend. But... Well, I mean, I don't have a corporate background, but Chris does. Um, and um, and Chris also has this background he just described, right? Um, uh, I'm very comfortable working in corporate settings with corporate people. Um, um, but when I see all these new folks coming in the industry you just mentioned, um, I see really three. I, I see the legacy folks like me who came in and and learned how to do this above board pretty well um, um, and 
have developed enough skills that I can work with the corporate people too. Um, some of us haven't developed those skills yet um, and are hopefully developing them because we really need to bridge, build a bridge between the new folks coming in that are purely corporate backgrounds and some of us that are lovers and holders and keepers and advocates of the plant um, because the corporate folks that have come in and that third group, which I'll call venture capital and, and, and family offices that have come in, there's a pretty big culture clash happening between all these groups right now. And it's not just within the companies, it's on the street. It's with the customers too. Um, that's why we're having this terrible problem with dual markets in California. Five years after legalization, 70% of the transactions are still in the underground market. Um, part of that is the taxes have driven up the price in the legal market so much that, you know, heavy consumers of cannabis, quote unquote stoners, you can't afford to buy all your weed in the um, dispensaries anymore. Part of it is they don't, the stoners now don't feel comfortable going into these corporate environments that got, went a little bit too far in the other direction. Um, uh, similarly, a lot of the corporate folks just don't feel comfortable working with legacy folks or they have stigma or they think these people are unsophisticated, uneducated, don't have any knowledge. They have a ton of knowledge, man. I, 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 I challenge anybody, any CEO from that corporate background, do what you're doing now while the police are chasing you, um, uh, uh, and see how you manage, um, and see if you can not go to prison like a lot of the people like me, I didn't go to prison, um, sold a lot of weed. Um, and so I want to build a bridge between all these groups um, because our adversary is the same. It's bad public policy. It's elected officials that either don't know or don't care to know about this plant and what it can do. It's regulators, it's tax authorities, it's, it's people that... Um, uh, those are the adversaries right now for for all of us and and um, a lot of the corporate folks and 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 this quote unquote experts <laughs> that have come in they haven't managed any better than we did under these frameworks and tax structures they're all losing money and struggling and um, they're able to raise a lot more money than people like me and my brother can and so they can you know keep putting concrete on the runway but the uh, the plane's not taken off. Um, because the frameworks are pretty broken, uh, particularly in a place like California. Um, so, so that's one of the ideas of pipeline, right? Like you see um, big MSOs rebranding right now. GTI just did a rebrand of their dispensaries called Rise. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Columbia Care just called themselves the Cannabis. Um, all their stores are now going to be called the Cannabis. They're rebranding. Um, those companies are probably spending, I don't know, quarter million, half million bucks to do those rebrandings. Um, they're hiring very fancy marketing agencies. They're, they're, um, spelling, uh, they're spending a lot more. I, my guess lot. is they're spending a lot more. I mean, tons, right? Um, and Pipeline's not about that. Um, Pipeline can deliver the same level of work, maybe even a little bit better work for much lower prices. Um, uh, nobody has, if you're, unless you're GTI, right? People can't really do that. Um, uh, and, um, and even if you are GTI, why throw more money after 
good or bad, then you have to. Okay. Well, and also, um, and also, just uh, here's an interesting question: Why are they rebranding? Because rebranding is always the result of an impact, hmm. right? It means that they didn't set up originally properly, so they feel like they have to then go and fix it. What yeah, we're suggesting is if you start at the beginning of the process, being thoughtful, being meaningful, being intentional, being critically minded, understanding where what your goals are, understanding how to set up your operations, developing your go-to-market strategies, understanding what the voice of the customers. If you do all of that work in the front of it, two, three, four years down the road, you don't have to turn and go, boy, we sure didn't know what the hell we were doing, but now I think we know what we're doing. Let's rebrand this thing. And so, you know, we're trying we're trying to catch, we want to catch you at the starting line or at in a transitional space so that we can help provide that filter to make sure that you don't find yourself a few years down the road going, well, we, you know, we had to learn completely by making a lot of mistakes. We we're going to bring all the mistakes we learned from to bear so that you don't have to. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's part of the, that's part of the deal. Yeah. yeah and, and, and sometimes the rebranding happens because the framework changes, right? Someone sure. might have been called wellness, something wellness. Sure, totally. And now, you know, it's an adult use framework. Um, and sometimes that's what it is. I, 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 and, and you see this in, um, especially like fast food, fast food, they're always changing their logo, right? They change it a little bit. They don't actually change the branding. Um, but they'll just change the logo a little bit. I mean, in my lifetime, Jack in the box has probably had 40 different I was just thinking that when you said that. Oh I my gosh, the box. you know? Yeah. And, and um, the lowest, perf- and one of the lowest performing fast food chains. Yeah. And, I mean, and, not as bad as Burger King, but does not match McDonald's, right? Yeah, yeah. right. And, um, and so it's, um, it, 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 so when these, even the big companies, when they rebrand, I want them to call Pipeline um, because, again, it's part of building that bridge. Um, and it's also part of, um, making sure that we're doing this in the in the best way that we can without having to spend too much money because it's a very hard thing to come by right now. Mm-hmm. It is. And I think, you know, when we talk about the different lenses, you know, the legacy lens versus the new entry corporate lens, you need a hybrid. And that, to me, talking to both of you, it seems like that's what you're really doing you're you're getting people ready you're getting them set for success you're creating that roadmap for success for them and helping them stay nimble that's it was actually it was actually called hybrid before we really yeah for a minute yeah we had some trademark issues with hybrid um but um uh, it's so telling that you said that and picked up on that Sarah because that's yeah, exactly that, that is exactly what we are doing yeah that's, I mean, that's I, what we de- need I, yeah definitely like I you know I think about I re- so there was a meeting that I, I've talked about this before with Andrew but there was a meeting the banker that was heavily invested into Harborside I remember sitting in the room with him and Andrew's brother one day and we were having this conversation and I suddenly realized that I had this weird superpower that I didn't realize that I had because I'd grown up in the in the in the culture. But I've been working at very high levels in the corporate world for a long time. And so there was a couple of times where Steve turned to me and he looked at me and I knew he didn't know exactly what dude said. So I was like, Steve, what he's saying is the man, want, you know, it's like I was acting as a translator for a second. Right. And when I walked out of that room, I remember saying to my wife when I got home, I said, oh, my gosh, I've just realized something that I is like happening here that I didn't ever think about, which is that 
I can kind of straddle the, I can straddle the bridge, man. I can, I can, I can get on both sides of the shoreline. I'm able to understand the hybrid thing. And I understand it even better when I'm around Andrew, because Andrew really helps me um, understand the industry in ways that I may not be aware of because he's so deep in it. And at the same time, um, I think that, you know, probably that's the gift that we're giving each other, which is these different perspectives that we're bringing together to straddle the, you know, to straddle the shorelines, which is, which is important. If this thing changes the way we think it will change over time, you got to know what's going on with what's coming in. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to see there's a wave, there's a wave coming, right? And, you know, giving it a surfer's perspective. And you look out there at that wave, you have to be able to see the kind of wave that's coming and you have to be able to adjust for it, get your board set in the right spot, get ready to stand. And if you can't do, if you don't have the people in-house to do that, we're, we can certainly come help you do that. Yeah. And with what's going on in the industry now, I mean, the MSOs may be able to get like those big teams, but they don't necessarily have the understanding that you do. And of course, we know that some of the smaller, you know, businesses that are poised for growth definitely don't have the money to be able to do that. And it would behoove them to not engage with some of the larger agencies because they don't understand what you're doing. Like they have, they, they only see their case studies and they're, there's, you know, bit by bit, but you, you've been immersed in it. You, you both yeah. understand. And the way we engage is more, if you think of like, sometimes um, I'll sit inside a company in a fractional leadership role and you, you get me for one or two days a week as your whatever, right? Mm-hmm. The idea being we're owner side representation. We're advocating for your business. We're not, I'm not going to make my money off of the percentages of products that you sell, unless you want to give me that, and then we can have that conversation. <laughs> but like, that's not the deal, right? Like it's a set rate. We're pushing really, we're pushing our numbers down to make sure that, you know, whether you need help on your website or you need help developing an operational program, or you need to structure, whatever it is, we can provide that at good cost. So you're not getting crushed or, or that you're not also just spending a lot of money on marketing groups, which you see a lot in the cannabis space, which are a bunch of folks that don't have a lot of experience, Mm -hmm. but cannabis was a place that they could come set up shop because, you know, not a lot of people wanted to work in cannabis at the time. And so that kind of advocacy that we're bringing, that kind of owner side representative we're bringing is our way of kind of helping the industry along. We still have to make a living, got kids, got a mortgage, but not trying to crush everybody with the cost of us being engaged. Yeah. Yeah. That, that seems to be like one of the biggest sticking points is it's either like, you know, the so larger companies coming in, but for the longest time with marketing and stuff, they weren't people that were having a lot of experience. I used to joke that it's like land of misfit toys. You want to learn how to do something? We'll yeah, take exactly. it here. That's a you, perfect way to put it. You yeah, know, totally. you're not you're not afraid of being on a list with the feds. Come hang with us. Yeah, exactly. Learn marketing via YouTube and help me. Yeah, it'll be good. I'm sure. It's, <laughs> I'm sure if we just build these fixtures this way, they'll work fine. It'll be great. It'll be great, yeah. but it's no, it's no. <laughs> seeing the two of you work. This gives me hope for like I, this is this is like the growing up of the industry. And when we look into the future, so. yeah, I I think it is. I mean, it's going to take time. It's taken us a long time already, but I mean, you know, buckle up. It's going to be a long ride. But in that, what are you both excited about in the future? What you see? You want to go first, Andrew? Uh sure. Well, I mean. I'm just excited about the stigma going away um, in people's minds and hearts with, with, with cannabis. It's still, I mean, I was in Ohio at, speaking at a conference. They're going to have adult use on the ballot in November. And, you know, it's the Midwest. It's a purple state. 
it's definitely not California anymore. And um, just the stigma is tremendous. Um, uh, and um, we are on the precipice of that going away. Ten, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, certainly 20 years from now, it's gone. It's gone. And people, it's, they're going to look at cannabis like vitamin C or, you know, um, something as normal and any other lifestyle thing yeah you know Mm -hmm. i mean just like uh, there was a time where if you ate organic vegetables you were a radical right Um, or if you grew organic vegetables you were a scrappy radical farmer that you know was crazy um uh, now whole foods is owned by amazon um, and, uh, farmer's markets are everywhere. And, um, you know, this people are, are saying, well, why don't you have organic? Um, and so the stigma on organic is completely gone. And in fact is reversed, right? And organic is still a little bit more expensive than conventional, you know, even organic hemp seed, when you buy and buy the ton is about 10 cents more per, per pound than normal hemp seed, right? It's not a dollar more per pound, but it's about 10% more, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and most people are willing to pay if they can, all right? If you live in poverty, you probably can't. But if, if you can, um, well, well, the tolerance is generally 5 or 10% more, and I will buy organic all day long because I really care about what's going in my body and what's going into the body of my children, okay? Um, and it's, I think it's going to be a similar thing uh, uh, with cannabis. The stigma is going to be gone. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm, I'm looking forward to people learning how to grow good weed at scale. Um, we don't have that right now. Um, most of the weed grown at scale is mediocre. Yeah, mm-hmm. land of mids. The yeah. land of the mids. Um, it may not be possible. Okay, this the the cannabis plant is a um, demanding plant. She's got a, a big sense of humor. <laughs> she doesn't like to be boxed in, and she doesn't like to be scaled. Um, and so, it, it, craft cannabis living and existing and thriving next to scaled cannabis is something I'm looking forward to because Mm -hmm. I'm of the school that those growers and manufacturers that can pay the most attention to the plant and its products are going to have the highest quality products. Um, They simply are. Um, uh, And and doesn't mean that big giant farms can't play an important role Okay, and they do play an important role. We would never have vape pen cartridges if that supply chain was dependent on craft cannabis. Just wouldn't happen. Um, um, uh, but we do have vape pen cartridges, and people enjoy them. I enjoyed them at the concert last night. I could take my vape pen cartridge and use it anywhere, in or outside the theater. You know, no big deal. Um, very nice. Um, uh, so. There's a place for all these things, um, but um, I'm looking forward to the craft cannabis. Right now, there's a craft cannabis disruption. Um, I'm looking forward to the craft cannabis renaissance. I think that's on the horizon. Um, I'm looking forward to the the frameworks that we operate in getting better. 
um, uh, whether that be at the state level, whether that be at the local level, or whether that be at the federal level. Here in California, we had this great bill that would illegalize cannabis cafes that passed overwhelmingly in the legislature, and the governor vetoed it. Um, so um, he, he vetoed it because of stigma. Um, he didn't, he didn't, ve there was no science behind it. It was only, I think only eight people voted against it. It was like 300 to eight in the legislature. It was overwhelming. Um, he still vetoed it. Now he's from the restaurant and wine industry. So maybe some people got to him because they felt threatened by it. But, um, um, but I'm, I'm, I, I, that was a big disappointment. Right. Um, but I'm looking forward. The day will come when we can have a cannabis cafe and, you know, blue sky, what you were talking about with your mom having a coffee and a joint right there. You can't do that right now under the Prop 64 framework. This would have allowed that to happen. Yeah, totally. cannabis cafe thing. And and that's going to come. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to being able to go to a stand up comedy show and consume cannabis in the lobby or the courtyard or wherever of the comedy club before the show or even you know hey everybody i'm about to make a weed joke get out your vape pens are you ready one two three inhale you know i mean well, just think about all those stand-up comedians that are dying to get everybody stunned out of their minds and come see their show it's yeah. a no you won't miss man you're, you're like yeah, time on I mean, stage you know, every and, every show's and, a killer and those are the kind of things i'm looking forward to these integrations that are ahead of us um and certainly there's no bigger thing than every single cannabis prisoner walking out of prison. There you go. That, that uh, I'm, 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 of all, all, that's the granddaddy of them all in terms of what I'm looking for. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think, I think a lot of what Andrew said, I, I, I just say yes, absolutely. The other thing I think is just um, the possibility that's ahead when it's an industry that's fully realized that um, is appropriately taxed and appropriately legalized um, all over the United States, all over the world. Because I think that of all the products out there in the world, this is one that does a lot to bring people together. It does a lot to calm people down um, and to stop being so crazy. And um, I guarantee if you took, you know, 50 MAGA hats and put them in the room with all of AOC's fans and everybody smoked a doobie, everybody be okay. And so, you know, there's that piece of it, right? It's just, and the proliferation of calm of calm but also just to have a thriving industry that people are having good success and coming up with great great ideas and and and, and great platforms and um and awesome uh, uh kind of identity you know brand identities and like all of the fun that comes out of that all of this stuff that creates jobs for people right meaningful jobs that people can go to work every day love what they do I have to say, one of the things that I remember when Steve walked me around Harborside the first time and I went in the back house and I was walking around, everybody there liked working there. There wasn't anybody there was complaining about their job and everybody had a gig and and a gig that they could like feel comfortable with, feel comfortable doing. It wasn't just sitting in some desk in some, you know, office trying to be somebody's assistant or something. So I just think it's that it's like a fully realized, um, wonderfully developed complete industry that allows for innovation and thoughtful thoughtful work and people having jobs yeah yeah i i agree with everything that both of you said and i just i look at it as another opportunity for us to talk about critical thought and look at creating capitalism that can support communities and 
creating generational wealth. Because I, the one mm-hmm. thing that I've learned with 12 years of being in the industry is that it's been an excellent model to look at how to do business in a whole different way that not only creates abundance for the people involved, but can really create positive change for our communities. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, you know, in order for us to help doing that, we just need, you know, people give us a call. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason why we're here is like, we really, really can bring a lot to bear. We do want to help. We're not free, but we're not as expensive as some of the craziness that you see out there. And we do have a lot of experience and a lot of expertise on our teams that we've combined together. We can, we can, we can do a hell of a lot in helping. And so, you know, part of the reason why we're running around is to say, Hey, we're here. Right. And, um, we'd like to help. Yeah. We'd like to get engaged. And when you think about, you know, the prices of, of services like this, you want to be able to get the most out of your consultancy. Absolutely. Because it's, it's, it's a big deal to make that kind of investment. And for people who do want to reach out or follow you on social media, how do they do that? Uh, Andrew under slash D'Angelo is all my social media handles are that I'm just Andrew D'Angelo on LinkedIn. AndrewD'Angelo.com is my website. You'll see Christopher and Pipeline on the website. Go to the landing page. Um, You'll also see us all over uh, LinkedIn right now um, as we continue to drop this announcement. Uh, you'll see a one sheet and a little deck that we have that we're dribbling out um, uh, so people can get a little bit better understanding of exactly what the pipeline and roadmap is for their success. Yeah. And I think if I think if you go to the pipeline, I believe it has like if you need to see what um, the ACV agencies like Andrews, you'll go to his site and you can see all the work that they do. You'll see pipeline. But if you need to also specifically look at what we do, it's acvconsulting.com. And um, you can see the body of work that we do. The reason why we're working together is because we really believe that mix of that work and the mix of Andrew D'Angelo Consulting together in Pipeline kind of brings everything you need. It's a full toolbox. Um, but uh, to, if, you, if you just want to look and see the kind of work that we do, please come and look, you know, come to the site and check out some of our work. We, we, we do good work. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see what you both do. And the next time we get together, we have to talk about cannabis and creativity. I'm in. I'm in. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. That's what. That's a big part of all I'm, of our lives. Listen, I, I'm telling you, it's like I, you know, I know Andrew and I share some familiar, from familiar background, but you know, I'm an art school kid, and all my degrees, you know, undergraduate art school, graduate degree was in the arts. Cannabis is a big piece of that. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I was a theater kid. There's a lot of people kid. sneaking out of Apple, going into the driveway. Oh yeah. Getting a vape pen. It's it's real. That's it. That's it. Why well, it's, it's for me being a a a, a mu- Well, I'm a, I'm a singer songwriter, but I was like Andrew. I went to school oh. for theater, so like that was a big part of our creative process. Oh, it's you t- see, no wonder well, we have a great conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Until next time, gentlemen, it was a pleasure. Come back anytime, seriously. I, I, Andrew, I always have fun talking to you. And Christopher, this was great. I Just pleasure getting to know you. And I'm so excited to see what Pipeline does because it's really, it's a game changer. Sarah, thanks so Appreciate much for so having much, us. Man. Yeah, you're such a lovely host. And um, we're excited to show the world um, about Pipeline too. Until next time, Thank fellas. You. All right. Okay. Ciao, Bye-bye. ciao.
And everyone remember, if you like listening, please give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care. 